Hey everyone, we'll get started in a minute. Hello everyone, welcome to Single Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. I'm a podcaster and writer. I do other stuff. Check out my uh, Substack, jessesingle.substack.com. I just did a debunking of a Heritage Foundation paper on puberty blockers and hormones that was really, really, really bad. It was a change of pace because as I wrote, most of the research conducted on the subject is conducted by liberal-leaning folks just because they do more research on the subject and there's more of them in the social sciences. But this was an example of conservatives embracing shockingly bad research to make their own political point. Um, the study in question, which wasn't peer-reviewed, claimed that blockers and hormones increased suicidality. And if you look at the methods, it's just it's a ridiculous study. It never should have been published by Heritage, and I'm frustrated that it went so viral. And it was... Um, Telling, but perhaps not surprising, that some of the same conservatives who who do look to me as someone who will like honestly dissect studies on this stuff and and um, you know be open about the fact that there's uncertainties in this line of research, they'll they'll sort of applaud, applaud diligence in a situation like that. They were willing to spread this study that was much worse than the studies I've critiqued because it pointed in the direction they want. So. At the end of the day, there aren't a lot of people who actually like rigor. It, it's what uh, Scott Alexander calls isolated demands for rigor. You demand rigor for stuff pointing in the direction you oppose, but you embrace shoddiness uh, if it's making a point that you know uh, flatters your priors. So that was frustrating. Uh, today, I don't have a huge amount to say. There's already a few people in the queue. More should get in the queue. I assume some folks will have abortion questions. I'll muddle through the best as I can. It's not my subject. I just generally feel like this is going to be very bad. Um, a lot of conservative states are going to pass laws that are unusual in the Western world and that are far to the right of what even pro-life people want, because this is an issue on which people have uh, fairly nuanced views, you know, at the level of averages. But let's start with KW and uh, see what he has to say, or they, or she. KW, what's up? I can. You're a little low, I think. Any way to get a little louder? Yeah. Nice. Hey, KW, I got to say, people are saying that um, they can hardly hear you at all. So I'm going to let you go, but I'm going to respond because I could hear you. I'm sorry about that, but folks are just saying they can't hear you. KW was just saying that he's been um, on a road trip. Uh, Justin, I'll get to you next. Just keep yourself muted for now. He was on a road trip to see Major League Baseball stadiums, which is a thing baseball fans love to do, to try to see all of them. I'm less of a baseball fan, but I can I can identify. And he tried to stay off social media, but he went on, and it just sort of destroyed his brain and exacerbated pre-existing mental health uh, problems, and that he was thinking of um, getting off Facebook or taking a break from it. And I think that is a very good idea. I wish I could be away from social media more. I might try to take a little bit of a break this summer from Twitter. Uh, I always feel a little bit better when I do. I feel something of an obligation to tweet my stuff because that's directly connected to sort of my work and my financial situation. If it isn't connected directly to your work and financial situation, I, I wouldn't recommend to anybody to be on social media. Um, and KW, if you want to follow up with email or anything, feel free. Uh, but um, I noticed yesterday, you know, there's there's much bigger issues at stake here than social media. But I don't know much about the abortion policy landscape. I do know that the first, like, 24 hours after big, scary news happens um, – it, it is a shit show on there. That was the word KW used, and it, it's terrible. It doesn't help anyone. There's a huge amount of just like collective 
regurgitation of trauma. There, there's much like the ratio of negative to positive emotions on there on a day like yesterday is terrible. And I can imagine it would have a bad effect on someone with pre-existing mental health conditions. You could imagine an alternative universe where like 80% of the sentiment is positive in a way, like in that disappointed, but, but we're going to have solidarity. We're going to get together. We're going to help people get the reproductive health care they need. But it, it seems like the people who are most depressed and anxious and sometimes hysterical take over. As I, as I was getting ready for this, someone, <laughs> John Cornyn, quote, retweeted Barack Obama, um, Obama was referencing the precedent thing. Cornyn, basically, his tweet, it was a little ambiguously written, but it basically said, like, okay, if you care so much about precedent, now do Plessy B. Ferguson and Brown v. Board. He's basically saying the, are the precedent arguments are a little bit silly because clearly there's some situations where you want to overturn precedent, which, you know, I don't know the details enough. That seems like a generally reasonable point. And a bunch of people, including journalists, are like, oh, my God, John Cornyn is calling for us to overturn uh, the decisions that undid segregation, which is just a crazy thing to say because it was like a little bit ambiguous. But no, a Republican senator is not calling for us to go back to segregation on Twitter. So I, I've noticed it too. My advice would be stay off if you can. Anyway, Justin, go ahead. Hey there, Jesse. Uh, hey. Hopefully you can hear me. Right. Yep, you're louder. Okay, great. Yeah, for the, I think the app has real problems on Android. Uh, yeah, I, I wonder, hey, next time there's someone with volume issues, I'll ask if they're on Android. And KW, let me know if you were too. I've noticed a lot of people calling in lately. It sounds very low. I do hit the normalization thing before I record it, so I uh, post it, so I think I can fix it that way. Android, yes. Okay, that's good to know. Anyway, go ahead, Justin. Yeah, and just for your own troubleshooting, I think Android and any kind of um, external device, like when I use my headphones, my Bluetooth things, for example, it's worse. I, I, I still am using their uh, loaner iPhone because I was unable to get it uh, working at all on Android, like for hosting a room. So yeah, there's some issues. Right. Um, yeah, I you know some teething stuff. Um, uh, so a, a quick comment about what you said about the Heritage article um, or paper, sorry. I, I didn't read your article yet. Uh, I will. Um, and you, you said at the beginning of this that uh, there's a lot more liberal uh, people who are invested in doing this kind of research than conservative people, which I think is true. Though I don't really, I don't really want to dive too deep into that categorization of, of the two camps. Let's say, uh, but I do think that probably a, a bigger reason why you don't see things um, coming from the perspective, let's say, of uh, the heritage uh, article is a matter of gatekeeping. I can't remember if it was on the show or not, but um, I think it's difficult to do research if your, for the most part, stated goal or you don't have some kind of built-in bias that is going to lead towards a, a, an outcome which is favorable for, um, uh, let's say, the ideology. Um, well, what I mean is, like, if you're going to write, if you're going to do something and you're like, okay, I, I want to see how suicidal really are these people. And, and uh, like, that's the only thing I want to measure. And you, you don't have, like, you know, oh, but you need, I, I think uh, I remember a caller saying, like, you know, you need to have a trans person on your team to help you design and interpret the study. Yeah. Um, it, it, it seems like, uh, I think a bigger factor here might just be that you can't do that kind of research unless you're very well self-funded. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's various in this area, like sort of structural biases in favor of um, liberals doing a lot of that work. Yes, I do think there's double standards where it's easier to publish something likely to show that these treatments work than um, more rigorous setups where that might not be the case. And I've, I've tried to explain some of the limitations of this research. So, yeah, I think you're making a fair point. I think it varies from institution to institution, but it like a lot of these institutions have broadcast that they're in a superficial and unhelpful way on the quote unquote side of these treatments, which to me raises the question of if they would publish, you know, disappointing results. And and one thing that's noteworthy is like there are studies that come out where if you look deeply into the studies, there's not much there showing the treatment's effectiveness. There'll be like one out of 10 things will be a positive result, but it's that one out of 10 things that gets highlighted and put in the abstract and put in the press release. So there's a little bit of like shading the truth going on here that I think is pretty bad. Yeah. And I think it's like a multi-stage thing that there's the, the onset, uh, there's this institutional biases, like, you know, these pre-commitments, like you're saying. Um, and then even if you can perform a study, uh, there's how are you going to interpret it? Are you going to be allowed to publish it? Um, but I've, I've read a lot of stories over the years about scientists who have had their work curtailed in some way because what they were saying just didn't add up to what the people who were funding it or publishing it wanted to uh, wanted to be seen as saying themselves as individuals. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, and... Maybe I should start with this, but um, I wanted to ask you about Colin and your your thoughts on the platform. I I follow a lot of content creators. I basically have like YouTube or a podcast or something on all the time, even when I'm working. And um, you know, there's this concept of the parasocial relationship. I hope you're familiar with the concept. I think you are. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, it's like that feeling of connection you you get with um you know when you're listening to a podcast or even to characters in a fictional drama or whatever. Right, exactly. And um you know, it's real especially in personality driven content and I think you've kind of fallen into that category. And uh I, I wonder what do you think about you know what is what is what does Colin do for that? Do you think that it's something that, you know, further further entrenches those ties or is it something that you know you can see to make a more real connection with somebody and i'm not saying that that's what's happening here uh, i'm just curious about uh what what your thoughts are about you know just the general phenomenon and then how a platform so intimate like colin kind of ties into that yeah i mean i i think it definitely makes the people who follow your work feel closer to you which is good um I have some questions about the business model and like if it's going to be able to make money because um, they're still in that phase where they're sort of, you know, they're paying us to do these. They're, they're subsidizing it with the idea is to spend money to get people on the platform and then eventually it becomes self-sustaining or there's ad revenue or something. Um, I, oh, I, I didn't like, realize. I, I think they're screwed, uh, but go on. Yeah. You think that's what? Uh, I think they're screwed. I think oh, they're screwed. I, just based on the numbers I see. Yeah. Sorry, Colin. No, yeah, I, don't, I just don't know anything about that side of that. And I, I actually intentionally try to just, like, put out good shows and, and not – and just ignore that. Um, uh, yeah, I know I really like doing it. It's a different kind of thing. It's much more like a sort of old-school AM call-in radio show. It introduces certain challenges, like, you know, 20% of the people questions, at, uh, questions people ask me 
it's an area outside my, my knowledge base or I just don't have a good answer in the moment. And it's made me respect the hustle and slight scam artistry of someone who can like do an AM radio show for three hours and never have a dull moment and always be able to answer questions, which I don't think I'll be able to do. But, you know, doing the show has definitely given me a sense of what my audience thinks and what they value and like areas I should pursue. Um, so yeah, I'm, I, I have questions about scaling and about the business model, but it's been, uh, it's been interesting. Is that more or less what you were asking? Uh, not quite, but that was a more interesting answer. So thanks a lot, man. <laughs> that, that'll do it. Thank you for the question, Justin. Lemon party. What's up? Lemon party. Undo your uh, mute. Otherwise, I'll take the next caller. And then if you can, can you hear me. Oh, sorry. Can you hear I me? Can yep, I can hear you. All now. right. Yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah. Uh, I was trying to uh, think of something clever again, as usual. Um, thank you for taking my call. Uh, regarding the guy called prior to you, uh, prior to the other guy who was talking about mental health and social media. I absolutely understand it. I just try to play Switzerland when it's on social media and on Twitter on my anonymous account. I just it goes under so many layers of irony. So you can see all the macabre Ed shit posting during this time for and against. I don't know. It's I'm not saying it's good for help my health or whatever. I just find it it's a coping mechanism. Like after the fall of Kabul, so many people just posted the the Taliban riding bumper cars. I'm not right. sure it's a good. I don't know. To each his or her own. Uh, hopefully the guy gets uh, this helps him. Anyways, back to uh, I was. Didn't I'm not sure if anyone asked you this. Uh, when the Bazelon article came out, has anyone who criticized you in the past talked kind of mentioned your article comparing and contrasting it? Because uh, I know that you were talking about how you were pilloried for your article. I was just curious if there was any comparing and contrasting from people who might have doubled down, walked back. I don't know. I want to get your sense, two cents on that. I think the only... I think there are a couple scattered Twitter examples of like people using the fact that I liked the article as a sign of its awfulness. I mean, that was very rant. Like, not a lot of people did that. I haven't really seen a lot of people connect them. They were like very similar. I mean, they were written at different points. The two main differences being she she's covering the the release of the standards of care eight by WPATH, which is a big deal and a big controversy, and these Republican state laws, neither of mm-hmm. which existed when I wrote about it. But I mean we really approached it from a similar angle of focusing on clinicians almost more than patients and parents, which is you know, uh, so no, I haven't really seen people draw those comparisons, but it would make sense because I think they're, I think we took similar approaches. Yeah, I mean, I think that if I really wanted to steal man their criticisms, I think your arguments were like talking about you focused largely on people who desisted. Same with the 60 minutes thing. And while talking about the clinicians and not necessarily going with the advocacy approach, that's what kind of caused some criticism. On the other hand, there was like this one didn't focus as much on. It focused on the criticism, but I didn't see too much focus on desistance. I think the biggest criticism was was Jen Speck being included and the language of uh, person zero, even though that was the terminology used in the Dutch model. Pa- patient uh, zero. She Basilon also was more forthright about social contagion. Like I don't think she used that word, but I was like, I just included like I said some parents think some of this is happening. Basilon. I think the conversations advanced where like people realize there's there's some of that, but yeah, people criticize her for that and for the patient zero for sure. Right? Yeah, I was just kind of curious because I remember seeing some of the people. I think it was I keep running dead Mark's name. I can't remember his name. Michael Hobbs um, and also Caitlin Burns. I remember they tried to issue. say they were critical of. Yeah, they they criticized the article, but they stopped at saying they were tra- that, that she was transphobic and said, "I've yet to see anyone call her a Nazi or transphobe," which that fell flat on its yeah. face. But I was just kind of like. 
I don't know. It just struck me as weird that they stopped short of that because they, you, you remember being dragged for this. And I think Katie was dragged a fair amount, though you were the prime example. I don't know. I just wanted your two cents on that, too. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I've seen plenty of people calling her a transphobe. I've seen maybe a little bit less of a mainstream response. Like, I'm not sure. We'll see. I'm not sure, like, Jezebel or New York Times are going to go after her. Um, yeah. I think, like, they've sort of, I've mentioned this point before, but the folks who don't want there to be a conversation here, I think, have lost. And they've lost in part because, like, you just can't ignore the volume of the debate among American clinicians, and you definitely can't ignore you know, Finland and Sweden, uh, and to a lesser extent, the UK really moderating their approaches on this stuff. Yeah. I mean, I was genuinely surprised how, how many people on Twitter were, uh, on, uh, Reddit were, uh, approving of like the swimming ban of the trans people who go through male, uh, male puberty. That surprised me. I mean, it, it just, it does seem like norms have changed or I'm not even sure I agree with the ban, but still it was surprising. I think, I think, there was a period where folks didn't feel like they could express any dissent on the subject, and that period appears to be coming to an end. But I guess we'll see. Yeah, uh, I was. Just, yeah, I mean, uh, more power to Leah Thomas. I'm just. I was just surprised about that. Anyways, I'll let you go into the next person. I just was curious about that. Your two cents on like the Baslong comparison contrast, because it seems like I don't know. They, they're both were comprehensive articles. Both tried to be sensitive, uh, but she's getting less of a backlash than you did. Not saying that's a bad thing. Just it was interesting. Yeah, I think it's uh, safe. Uh, no, anyway, uh, yeah, I think I said what I'm going to say on that, but I, th I think it's safe to say she's gotten less backlash, which, whatever. I'm I'm glad people feel freer to uh, write openly about this stuff. All right, cheers. Uh, yeah, have a good weekend. Nice All right, party. You too. Ben, what is up? Hey, Jesse, uh, can you hear me? I can. I heard some very inspiring music, like before a wrestling match or something. <laughs> yeah, I had to turn turn down my uh, my Elden Ring volume. Um, yeah, I had a, a comment to leap off of uh, Justin's last uh, question a couple callers ago about the Colin platform, and I think that um, as it stands right now, Colin as a sort of free, like free to use discovery platform probably isn't going to work. Because I only use Colin because you have a show, and if there were any other people that I follow that had a Colin show, I'd probably use it. But I'm never going onto the Colin like homepage to find just a room to listen to. So I, I don't mean, you would, so you would never use the platform for the platform's sake. You would exactly. just here for me, which is of course I mean, the best reason to do anything. Kind of, and that's what a traditional Colin show is anyway right like you're not just calling into radio shows generally you're calling into the, right you're not like i'm going to listen to the radio because i like the radio you listen yeah. for a certain personality yeah and especially when you're doing something active as call as active as calling in it's it's like you're, you're going to be interested in the same things to a degree that like if you don't know the person you're listening to you're you're not going to care about like I, I wouldn't even know what questions to ask someone that i don't know so I think that it would work. You know, there are other podcasts I listen to which have community calls through Discord, which I think has some method where you, like, raise a hand. And it's probably similar to this, but the people who have access to that Discord are are paying subscribers. Yeah. So I, I think that model probably works better for content creators. Like, you know, I think that's something I'd like to see more of. You know, Sam Harris has a sort of similar thing where paying subscribers can 
do an AMA and you may, you know, it's probably less of a chance to get called on. I don't know how that works in format, but yeah, I don't know. I think that the way that Colin is formatted as a free platform um, maybe isn't the best way for Colin shows to work, but I definitely think that it's a great way to connect with, with people that, that you follow. Um, so yeah, that was, that was just my comment on, on that point. And I actually don't, I don't really have a question, but I just wanted to recommend to anybody listening, uh, in the audience or you, Jesse, that, uh, the first episode of John Ronson's things fell apart podcast does a great job of describing kind of the history of, um, the rights obsession with abortion and how yeah i listened to this a while ago and then i forgot to listen to the rest of the series but yes a very interesting subject and very good treatment oh, of it it's crazy yeah it's and and it gives me actually a lot of optimism because it's like people have only cared this is not like a deep issue for the right this is just something that people have been told to care about for only 40 yeah. years it's like in the 80s and it's a fascinating listen if anybody wants to know about the rights yeah I agree. History with abortion. Yep. All right, I second well, thanks, that recommendation. Man. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate yeah, it. Appreciate, appreciate the call. Bye. Neil, what is up? Um, so I I had a question I was kind of thinking about in response to the the recent uh, ruling. So um, Tim Urban recently tweeted uh, earlier this month a graphic that, that was like, share of Democrats and Republicans who don't want their child to marry someone of the opposite party. And it shows how in 1960 it was 4% of each party. And then in 2018, it was 45% of Democrats and 35% of Republicans. And then his caption was, as many forms of bigotry have waned in America over recent decades, another form has blossomed, right? Basically heavily implying that um, this kind of political polarization uh, or political bigotry against the other parties is like a negative thing, right? And I just don't, and then he, and then some people push back, right? And he defended it saying, oh, by the, you know, the literal definition of bigotry, this is technically bigotry. But then I was like, well, but that's, the connotative definition is like bigotry is a bad thing. And I was saying that this kind of political like polarization isn't a bad thing, like especially with relationships or like your kids relationships. Like I just don't. I, so I mentioned before that my mom's a Democrat, and my dad's a Republican, and they just like fundamentally disagree on like like the vast majority of like policy questions and like yeah. values questions. And especially this like <laughs> the thing that happened yesterday. Um, and it's just like. It, it was just so strange to me growing up because whenever like something political would happen, my dad would start to like say something and my mom would be like, nope. And then they just wouldn't discuss it. And so they would, it just never discussed anything politically. And it was like so very strange to me because I think that's what led to me having to form like most of my own beliefs because there wasn't like any kind of adult like guiding me in this. And I thought that's, I wonder how many people experience that or are more influenced by their parents. But it's just like, I don't know. It's like, don't isn't it a good thing that people want their like significant others or their kids significant others to share their values because yeah. i guess i guess political parties are a proxy for values right because you could be a democrat and then still agree with values but then uh, uh, from a republican you could share the same values but a lot of the political polarization is because people have different values and so i don't know i just don't see why this kind of fracturing is a bad thing necessarily yeah, I mean, I think it's a bad thing that we don't feel like we can talk to one another and that, you know, um, there's ratcheted up levels of distrust. And um, I like him and I, I know him a little bit. I, I would disagree with the idea that that's bigotry because uh, values are important. And, and, you know, I if I had a kid, the most important thing would be for them to get married to someone who cared about them and who made them happy. But I, I would totally prefer them to be married to someone with progressive political values because – 
especially if you're like a family where that's a big part of what you do or you work in politics, you write about politics, it, it's going to come up. I think it's less of an issue for couples that are less political. And that's great that I, I wouldn't want a world where Democrats and Republicans couldn't get married, but it's like there's some pretty big differences in the liberal between the liberal and conservative worldviews. And there's reasons we hold our beliefs or reasons we think we do. And I think it's only natural to, you know, want our, have a lot of our closest ties be with folks who agree with us politically. I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I just think, isn't it, isn't it weird though? Like if you're in a relationship and you just don't discuss politics at all, but you like fundamentally disagree and that, that you would get into an argument if it, if it was ever brought up. Like, I feel like that's, that's not healthy, right? I don't know. Some, yeah. If, if you're like actually able to like completely like um, compartmentalize it in that way, I guess it is, but it works. But like, I don't know. It just seems strange to me. Yeah. Alexis shrugged asked, would you say the same about religion? Uh, in, in a sense? Yeah. I wouldn't marry someone who's an Orthodox member of a religion. Cause that's very far from my beliefs and my beliefs about, you know, my opposition in my own life to following Orthodox religion is pretty important to me. And it just wouldn't work to be married to someone with it. And, um, you know, I, 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 all else being equal, you just you're gonna form your closest relationships with folks who share your values, and I don't think that's bigotry as long as you, of course, uh, live and let live. So um, anyway, that's a good good question, yeah. Neil, and I, I didn't see that Arbin had pointed that. Thank you for the call. Cool, Klaus, what is up? Yeah, I just have a general question about Substack, and. I think about it like there's a lot of interesting writers on there. Like I subscribe to you and there's like Freddie DeBoer and, and Matt Iglesias and Josh Barrow. But like if I subscribe to everyone that interests me, that's like way too much money a month. Yeah. And I'm just what, whereas like, you know, if it were bundled together for like 15 bucks or something, I probably would. And I know that's probably not an issue as it grows, but is that something you and other Substack writers have thought of going forward? Because I know a lot of times on online platforms, people lose interest after a bit. And then yeah. maybe, you know, going forward, I don't know. I'm just wondering if that's something you've thought about. Um, yeah, I think all of us are aware that it seems unlikely people keep adding new subsects to subscribe to indefinitely. Iglesias, I think, has talked about this, like, sort of asymptotic curve where your your rate of growth really slows down over time. That's happened to him. That's happened to me. I think I'm like you know, maybe a 10th or a fifth, the size of his audience. Um, the problem, there's like sort of pretty formidable, formidable coordination problems here because even at my level, it's like a really good business model for me. And I'm really grateful, um, about how well it's working. I'm only like a mid tier sub stacker. Iglesias, I think is like up around like seven figures. I can't say for sure. So why would I, Barring some sort of collapse, which I don't think is going to happen, because like even if even if we lost ten or twenty percent of our audience overnight, which would be on the graph would actually look horrible. It would still be a very sustainable individual business model. What would make me agree to sign on to a bundling deal unless the bundling deal guaranteed my income would only grow? But from the point of view of the funder, how could they afford to bundle a bunch of people and only guarantee their incomes grow? So it's just how do you how do you get everyone on the same page? One possibility is like a Glenn Greenwald or Matt Taibbi type out of the goodness of their own heart decides to subsidize a um, group bundling effort. But I don't I don't see that happening. I wouldn't expect them to do that. I don't think if I was in their position, I'd do it. So I'm with you that it seems like something that would be necessary. But for, for now, those of us who have been lucky uh, since the Substack revolution, whatever you want to call it, we just don't have much incentive to do anything but what we're doing. 
Yeah, that's what I've thought of as well. I mean, if you're doing well on your own, you know, why would you accept a part of a bundle where you only do $2 a month instead of five? It wouldn't, um, it wouldn't work. I, I just wonder, like, when it comes to online platforms, if people, uh, you know, not next month, but like three years down the line, are people still going to be subscribed to 10 different people? Um, yeah. No, that's, I mean, that's the big concern, but that's all the more reason why if you are doing well now to, save money while you can and to make money while you can. But I, I'm with you. I think there's a, ch- it seems unlikely that things will just continue in exactly this way forever. And we'll just keep slowly climbing. It feels like at some point there's going to be some sort of correction or reversal. Yeah. Like sometimes in a comment thread, I just look at who else someone subscribes to. I don't know why, but sometimes you see people that are subscribed to like 10 different people and good for them. But I just, I don't think they'll be doing that a year from now. Yeah, uh, I do think those of us who got on early probably have a bit of a fir- like first mover advantage because we just like the earlier you establish. I think it's the case that once someone's been subscribed to you for fourteen months, there the longer they've been subscribed, I think the longer they're going to keep subscribing. Although, as I say that, I don't know if that's true. It just feels true. So I don't really know. I'd like to talk to more like VC folks or other writers about like actual feasible bundling options those would be useful conversations to have in the event things go awry but uh yeah i'm just agreeing with you uh but also explaining why i would not at the moment um accept any sort of bundling thing unless there were like very a very strong safety net basically makes sense thank you klaus good questions about the business model from everybody both colin and this Nixon. Hopefully, hopefully this is the ghost of Richard Nixon because that'd be interesting. But let's see. Can you hear me? All right. I can. How's it going? Uh, doing all right. Thanks. I'm on an Android for what that you know matters. You sound great. Excellent. Um, just real quick, the well, maybe not real quick, but I wanted to get some perspective on this sort of. I guess you might call it a catch twenty two, but the. The sort of ideology that says that for transgender youth, uh, particularly males, I think, that pre and, and mid pubescent have uh, what they use, the, the euphemism of an easier time transitioning, uh, because it seems like it's sort of um, targeting a certain aesthetic, more, more like a beauty standard than a gender standard. And I wonder if that doesn't put some you know, undue pressure and sort of passively target those those pre and mid pubescent uh, boys as as needing uh, early uh, gender affirmation care in order to seek a certain aesthetic uh, rather than just accept that there are, uh, you know, feminine male bodies and masculine female bodies. Yeah, that's a good and tough question. Um, I should say I'm going to do armchair and fill up and then uh, I'm going to have to call it there. But Neil, definitely call call back in next time. But I have to wrap it up after that. Um, so, right. Okay. So on the one hand, you, there's a lot of discourse that's like men can look however they want. Women can look however they want. These are just stereotypes. But on the other hand, you have this argument that like, well, no, to some trans people, passing is important. And in that case, you want to get them on blockers early and then hormones. Um I, I can completely understand why someone who is going to be trans the rest of their life wants to transition early and wants to not go through uh, their natal sex's puberty. I think there's serious trade-offs 
to doing blockers and hormones early, and there's serious unknowns, including things like, like this always comes up, but it comes up for a reason. Uh, and it came up in Bazelon's article, sexual health and sexual function. 12-year-olds who haven't really been through puberty cannot possibly know exactly what it would mean to not have full sexual function for their entire adulthood. And that is, I think, what is sometimes the case. We really don't know, but there's strong reasons to think that you're just not going to have anything like a normal sex life. That's the kind of trade-off that has to be talked about honestly. I think for trans women in particular, and and obviously talk to them and see what they've written and said about this, it's just going through a male puberty really means you will always really stand out and not be able to pass as a woman. And if your goal is to just live your life as a woman without folks bothering you, without folks asking questions, I can see a pretty big difference uh, there. And I can see why there'd be a sense of urgency. I do think it's just very hard with like an individual kid to, I would imagine it's hard to go through the diagnostic period and go through this assessment with this stuff hanging over you and with this sense of urgency. And there are places where the wait lists are really bad. So I think sometimes I like dodge questions by just being like, it's complicated, but in this case it, it is complicated. Did I, did I more or less address what you were curious about? Uh, sorry, this is, I just want to make sure I can still be heard here. Yeah. Um, the, the issue is uh, obviously complicated and, and should be as a case by case basis. It's just that I do have that concern about this, um, this, this sort of nefarious euphemism of an easier time without really acknowledging that, that it is, uh, and even in an understandable, justifiable sense, but it is targeting a certain aesthetic standard more than it is acknowledging that, uh, you know, like I said, there there are masculine, feminine bodies and feminine, or sorry, ma- masculine, uh, female bodies and feminine, male bodies. You, you know, you have people who are obviously uh, natal females like Michelle Obama or uh, Lady Gaga, and, and they nevertheless face accusations of being trans uh so it's not clear cut maybe one way or the other that uh, they will or won't face some form of discrimination in the future. But but I can understand why that's, uh, you know, justifiable, uh, someone who would seek that uh, transition in youth. And, yeah. and if you wanted to, to avoid that conversation, I did have two quick uh, comments also to make. One about Neil's situation and his parents. If there's any indication from uh, George and Kellyanne Conway I'm, I'm sure it's, you know, <laughs> that the sex is wild and, and, you know, his parents are still together. <laughs> so they're, uh, they're probably doing fine. Uh, oh, and, and personally for you, Jesse, I'm sure, um, you may have some comment on this, but if you wanted to admit to any jealousy that Katie got on Bill Maher and here you are on call. <laughs> no, good for Katie. I mean, it obviously helps the podcast. So I was glad she got to do it. And this will mean she can no longer complain. I got to do Rogan. Cause I think Bill Maher is likely a much bigger deal than Rogan. So I actually haven't been able to watch it yet, but I'm looking forward to, and uh, hopefully she didn't talk too much shit about me on the air. I'm guessing I did I not come I don't up, know that you came up, but yeah. <laughs> you could always uh, do Bill Maher's podcast. Maybe <laughs> there we go. Uh, All right. anyway, thank you. Thank you, Nixon. No, those are those are good and really tough and painful questions about like the timing for for kids who transition. So not easy, no easy answers. Armchair and Philip, and then I'll have to wrap up. Do I'll get you next time? Hey, hey. yeah. Can you hear me, Jesse? I can. Yes, great. Um, I had a question in regards to the recent um, uh, demolition, I guess you can call it, of Roe v. Wade. Um, and in terms of, I guess, the strategy that left-leaning people and the Democrats more specifically should employ in uh, dealing with this and going forward and trying to um, reverse this, um, to me, 
I, I think everything stems like all these legal decisions, all these political decisions, uh, they stem in large part from the way people think about issues like abortion on a philosophical level. And a lot of people, I think, um, when you just ask them, you know, regular people, if you ask them, you know, what they think about abortion, um, at least in America, um, those who are pro-life, they would say, a lot of them at least, maybe not everybody, and I don't know exactly, you know, what the figure on that would be, but a lot of them, I'd say probably a majority of them, I think that's a, that's a safe assumption to make, uh, would say they, they are pro-life because they are religious, and they, their religion has informed them of this, you know, of this importance to, to maintain this, as they call it, as they call it, life. Um, so my, uh, question and I guess comment slash question basically, uh, you know, uh, an idea for a strategy and you can tell me, you know, what you think about it. Um, I think the left has been really toothless on attacking religion. And attacking, not just to be clear, not, uh, I don't mean, you know, painting, you know, uh, you know, justifying uh, religious bigotry against people who are religious, but just saying, you know, things that are demonstrably true, which is, you know, if somebody comes up to you and says, yeah, I am pro-life because my Bible says so, you know, somehow we're really toothless and can't just say what is obviously in our minds or in a lot of our minds, which is, I'm sorry, that doesn't matter because your book was not written by God. We have no evidence of that. And so, you know, you, you got to come up with some actual, actual reasons. Otherwise you're just, you know, you're just, you're just making stuff up. You're, you know, you're living in a fairy tale. Um, and I think like I haven't heard people on a, you know, running for a political office, make this case understandably so but i think you know maybe that would be helpful you know if somebody who you know, who was running for public office would was more um was more um uh i guess courageous in in, in fighting this sort of uh, you know toothlessness but just just yeah basically what do you think about this um, you know, do you think this is a good idea or do you think this can backfire? Um, I'd, I'd be interested in, to hear what you think. Yeah. I mean, I, look, I, I have complicated views on the way progressives take on this issue. I, I can't say, I think that for some like big name politicians, they're maybe too deferential and, and, and too respectful toward folks who don't make good arguments on this. But I, I sort of feel like I've also seen a lot of the opposite of, it's very common to say that um, people who are opposed to abortion are opposed to abortion because uh, you know they fundamentally hate women or because of the patriarchy, and that it's just it's literally just a medical procedure like any other. So I was interested to hear your comment because I almost feel like there's more of a trend of progressives embracing ineffectual arguments on this rather than that they're too soft on conservatives. But I. I think what it comes down to it is like conservatives have really on this issue, at least they've done an amazing job over the decades of organizing and of getting the right judges in the right positions. I, I am always uh, tempted to say the Democrats are incompetent because I just, they haven't really acquitted themselves well in my lifetime. I don't know what they could have done differently about like Merrick Garland. I just think there's been a huge amount of Republican success here and I'm not sure what difference it would have made 
if we had argued differently here or there. It, it's also worth pointing out that a lot of these red states are passing laws that are considerably to the right of even what a lot of Republicans want. So there's just some weird stuff going on at the state level that isn't necessarily reflecting even conservative public opinion on this stuff. Cool. Fair enough. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Armchair. Alex, you will be the last caller. Let's make this good. You're very low, unfortunately. Are you on Android? It's very low. Why don't, keep the question short, and then I'll sum it up for everyone in case others can't hear you. Okay, I did have one question. Um, it was about the, I guess, the some of the response to the Emily Bazelon article. Um, I was just wondering, like, um, what happened to, like, common decency and just um, human word right now, but um, just more like common decency and um, respect for other people. I mean, I've seen some people accuse her of being a Nazi, and I know that she's of Jewish background. And I just personally, I'm not Jewish myself, but I would find that very insensitive and offensive to call Yeah. No, that... Yeah, so Alex is asking me just about, like, what happened to common decency and people calling Bazelon, who is Jewish, a Nazi for... Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, of course, with you in favor of common decency. I just think, unfortunately, that um, that train has left the station on Twitter. There's a lot of stuff that incentivizes people to either pretend to be deranged or for deranged people to get more deranged. And, yes, people claiming that her argument was making a Nazi-like argument uh, – article was making a Nazi-like argument is just – insane and i i think it's worth calling it out look i it's seen as like quaint or old-fashioned or like boring centrist to be like don't call people nazis don't be an asshole to people but i, I think it's important and i think a lot of people would be exposed if they had to express their arguments using more humane uh civil language so um yeah sorry about the audio issues but I, i'm with you completely i just think unfortunately we're we're way past that point on twitter um with that, I have to wrap up. Thank you guys for joining me. It's 90 degrees here in Brooklyn, so I was glad I was able to be inside in the air conditioning and feel like I was being productive. I have uh, got some work to do, and then a high school friend has her wedding party at 6, so i got to get ready for that. But um, thank you guys, as always, for tuning in. Please spread the word about this show. Check out my substack, jessysingle.substack.com, uh, blockchainreported.org. Uh, yeah, thank you guys so much. I hope the rest of your weekend is good and that you're staying cool wherever you are. Bye.